0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to VMB, the voice of Manhattan business, brought to you by the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. I'm your host, Bruce Hurwitz. You can find me on the web at hsstaffing.com. I hope everyone will be able to join me this coming Wednesday at noon. When my guest will be Barbara Schwartz from Accu Weight Loss, The Bead Diet. We will be discussing managing stress without food. To learn about all future shows, please visit our website, thevoiceofmanhattanbusiness.com. And please remember to visit the events page on the Chamber's website, manhattancc.org, to learn about upcoming events on the Chamber's calendar. I am delighted to be joined today by Brian Rauer from the Better Business Bureau. We will be discussing risk management, business continuity, cybersecurity, privacy, and more. Please remember the opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or positions of the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. Additionally, as a matter of policy, the Better Business Bureau does not endorse any product, service, or business. The information provided here is believed to be reliable, but the BBB does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. No information provided here or in conjunction with this interview constitutes nor shall be construed as legal advice. It is not intended, nor may it be relied upon as legal advice in any form. If you have any questions, feel free to call in. The number is 805 243 one three zero one, and dial one, so I know you have a question. Brian, welcome back to the show.
0: Hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's our pleasure. For those who have not had the pleasure of hearing our previous chats, tell us about yourself and your organization.
0: Sure. Um, BBB. It's a private nonprofit. It's a standards-based organization. Uh, The BBB system itself is over 100 years old. Um, The New York BBB is over 90 years old. Um, And the BBB serving Metro New York, we cover all of New York City, the full Mid-Hudson region, and Long Island. Um, We offer uh, consumer and business education. Uh, We have business reviews, and they include a three-year complaint history of complaints we receive. Uh, We conduct dispute resolution. It's neutral. It's unbiased. And it includes things like mediation, conciliation, arbitration. Um, we also and again, these are all free services. These are free and available to the public. and uh, we also have a separate education and research foundation. It provides charity reports, and it talks about things like what percent of your donations goes to your to their mission. So those are some of the things that we do here at the BBB.
1: Now, I know arbitration is binding. mediation is not binding. What's conciliation?
0: Well, and again, I, without getting too technical into the, the, the yeah. distinctions between the two, um, I mean, the essential earmarks is you're dealing with a neutral process that's more party-dominated, and you have a neutral conciliator who is working between the two parties and helping them to resolve the issues in, again, it's a non-binding way, but allowing them to form more creative resolutions to the issues and hopefully come to a meeting of the minds. Um, arbitration isn't always binding, but generally it's binding, um, it can be conditionally binding, but, uh, you know, mediation is a little bit more formal than conciliation, and uh, these are services we've been performing for years, and we've resolved tens of thousands of cases, so um, we're very proud of that because, uh, you know, we're helping consumers and businesses hopefully maintain that business relationship in um, hopefully a non-confrontational way that's really dominated by them. It's really about them, not about us. We're just that neutral trying to help them to better understand what the issues are that that their dispute is about. And uh, <clears throat> it tends to work pretty effectively, so it's, uh, it's something i have been very proud of.
1: Thanks. I was just curious. I hadn't recalled if you had said that previously, so I was curious.
0: But it anyway, actually. I haven't. So thank oh, you for asking. <laughs> there you go.
1: So again, our topic today is risk management. So what is risk management, or more specifically, what is cyber risk management?
0: You know, I think a lot of people have probably heard the term, but when you're really dealing with risk management, risk assessment, you're basically starting out with you doing a cyber assessment in this area. You really want to understand what information you need to protect. You want to identify, you know, the key company assets, um, critical assets, you'd call them, uh, the most important information that you are holding on to, client lists and personally identifiable information, you know, legally protected information. Then you really want to identify what are the threats to this key corporate information that you have. Um, How are you storing it? You know, who has access to it? Um, How are you protecting this data? And then you generally move to that next uh, phase, and you're looking to forecast whatever the consequences would be if you're successfully hacked, if there's an attack against your business. Um, You want to quantify that risk. So what could happen um, if you are successfully attacked? If there's a successful cyber attack against your business, what would be the potential results? and a potential damage to, to your business. So then you look at things like, like cyber risk mitigation. And basically you want to have a plan, and it's going kind to of focus on, on a variety of areas. Like how do you prevent this? So you have policies and procedures in place that reduce the risk of you being attacked successfully or attacked at all, hopefully. Um... What will be your resolution if it happens? So, if there's a security breach, um, what are your plans you have in place? What procedures are in place? Um, so you determine the resources that you'll need to to remedy it. And you know, how can you move on to that next phase of, of still operating your business um, with, without too much disruption? And then there's this, the restitution phase of it. If you've had the problem, you, know, you want to address whatever those repercussions are. If you've had the security threat, if you've had a breach um, in terms of employees, employee information, customers, and customer data you've had this loss of trust, Um, you know, how do you keep it, how do you minimize it, how do you keep it as a short-term issue rather than something that can develop into a much larger issue? So if you're looking at any kind of effective risk management plan, you want to help keep these small issues from becoming real emergency issues, then you have a problem. So you're calculating probability of the event, how this event is going to impact you and your business, and then again, how are you going to mitigate the problems that are kind of associated with those risks you have. Um, You know, it's another good resource. The National Cybersecurity Alliance also has uh, extensive material in this area, so that's another good resource to check out as well.
1: You've been saying how-to a lot. So how implies policies. So what are some of the basic office policies that business owners should consider when thinking about cybersecurity (coughs) and their staff? Because obviously staff, is the key to making your cybersecurity plans uh, effective.
0: Absolutely right. You know, we we, we call it kind of in, in this area, you call it creating that culture of security. Um, and you want to create that with training to start, you know, a training and then training and then do some more training. Um, It's really about continual staff education. What are the new risks that have, you know, arisen? What are vulnerabilities that you've seen? You know, how do you protect against phishing scams and, you know, and data loss scams, things like that? So put in place really clear office policies, policies, really clear procedures. Have them written. You want to have regular reminders to your staff. And then you really want to empower them. And what I mean by that is you don't, you don't have punitive measures. You want to encourage them to report this. And there are some, you know, corporate cultures, there are some, you know, in small businesses as well where it really is punitive, that no one wants to admit mistakes. Um, and if they do that, it's, it's more dangerous because if a breach occurs, they're going to hide it, particularly if it's their fault. They think that they're going to get in trouble. It should be exactly the opposite. You want to encourage them to report it as soon as possible. Even if they're responsible for the error, even if it's their issue, um, the only ones who should be reprimanded by the company are the ones that actually hide it and don't come forward. So you want to let them know, listen, this is something that you won't get in trouble for. We're encouraging you to tell us it happened because that's the way we can mitigate it and that's the way we can find out about it. So that's kind of what I talk about empowering your staff. They should be incentivized to want to tell you that something's happened or even if something looks amiss, you know, just let them know, oh, maybe there's a problem, so at least we can check it out beforehand. You wait 48 hours, you know, that could be like a year in this area. So you want to make sure that they're telling you as soon as they see a problem. And when you think about kind of more specific policies, you want to put together, you know, something in writing like maybe an acceptable use policy on how they use your information, your technology. Um, So, you know, if they're using their devices and, uh, you know, if they're on the network, they have to agree and they have to sign an access and use agreement, and that's a pretty easy thing to draft up. Um, You want to make sure that, again, they're they're participating in, like, a cybersecurity awareness education program. Um, You want to focus on things like physical security. Um, Again, if they're using their smartphones, laptops, um, the devices have to be secure when they're away from their desk, when they're traveling. Um, Don't write your password on on a Post-it note and stick it on your (laughs) computer. That kind of defeats the entire purpose. Surprising how often you might see that. Um, You know, password authentication policies, you know, passwords have to be long and strong, so that's a mix of letters and symbols and numbers as opposed to password, um, which is one of the most common passwords in the country. And I think number one is 12345 or 123456. So you should avoid those. Um, Those can be broken into in a matter of a minute or two. So also have a policy they have to change passwords regularly. Don't have the same password for five years. Don't use the same password for for everything you're doing. And then make sure it's kind of authentication enabled for all email accounts so not anyone can simply access your account. Um, you want to also kind of limit access and have uh, personnel security access. So for all personnel data, it has to be locked down. And the only people who should really have access to it are those who are authorized. They have a need to know. They have a need to do their job that way. But it shouldn't be available to everyone in your organization. I'd also finish up with kind of an email usage policy. You can't send sensitive data through regular email. It's just not secure. You have to require that it be encrypted or simply don't send it by email. So again, and it's kind of as you mentioned to reinforce this: these policies they're only effective if you incorporate them into into your office routine and your behavior. If they don't do that, if they don't follow them, they're just words on a page and they mean nothing.
1: My favorites, for lack of a better word, for example, I was thinking of canceling today's program because about a half hour ago I got an email. Telling me that I had won the uh, million dollar Oxfam International lottery. Oh,
0: congratulations. It said you it didn't send my <laughs> details
1: to <laughs> Oxfam com. Now, I'm not that stupid, but people who are a little bit more sophisticated, and it really does bring from your credit card company. But when you put your cursor on the link and look at the bottom of your screen, all of a sudden you see that it is a uh, totally fictitious um, uh, site. It's usually Russia, and you don't click on it. Those are the threats that I see every day, and the Lord only knows how many I miss what would you say are some of the major cyber threats to the business community in recent years?
0: Okay, well, first, Bruce, don't send them any of your information. You are not a winner. Um, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> they rely and upon I was even also if, <laughs> told not to
1: respond.
0: No, don't years no, ago, respond.
1: Yes. You don't respond because then it, it – um, I don't know what the word is, but it's not legitimate, but it uh, authenticates your email address.
0: Yes, it okay. shows that they actually reached a real email address that you responded. So no, the best thing to do is not to respond, delete it, and then delete it again, um, even though that doesn't delete it off your computer. And that we can talk about wiping computers later, but absolutely do not respond to that. That's what they yes. want you to do. So um, yes, I'm glad you didn't. You realize that, but unfortunately, even if one percent fall for that, then they've actually accomplished their mission. Unfortunately, so.
1: Well, I used um, to work for a senior services organization, and the elderly would fall for it all the time.
0: Unfortunate. Um, yeah. By the way, just uh, in, in terms of your 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 comment and questions about um, what some of the major issues are now, I mean, I'll tell you this. Um, it surprises people when they hear that things like uh, physical theft is still an issue. Um, things that you know, the things they don't they don't think are actually issues. They think it's more um, it, it's it's more high high tech and new age. But the bottom line is that most of the thefts are occurring in victims' work areas, um, staff-owned vehicles it's still basic stuff like people leaving a laptop that's unencrypted with customer data um, left right in the seat of a car. That can lead to a devastating result for a company. So little things like that are still major issues. So if you have any devices that have key uh, substantial data, uh, uh, consumer data, um, you've got to use a higher level of protection. You've got to be real careful what you do with those because that still is one of the biggest issues going with businesses having breaches. So I'd say probably most organizations now, they're heavily dependent on people using their mobile devices, they're using their smartphones, and I think what people tend to forget is smartphones are actually computers. They don't think of them as computers. So even though they protect their home computers or laptops, they tend not to have protection on their smartphones. And the problem with this is that you know, smartphones and tablets, they are far outpacing laptops, and laptops are far outpacing desktops. So these are the main ways people are accessing their work files. These are the main ways they're accessing data and, in many cases, storing data, but yet they're not protected in the same way. There's something called what bring about your own modems
1: and, What about modems and um,
0: uh, the um, Wi-Fi routers? Well, I mean, first of all, any time you're dealing with Wi-Fi, you you have extra concerns because, again, that may not be a secure – never use public Wi-Fi. That's a given. Um, But the fact is, you know, if you're using Wi-Fi, make sure it's absolutely secure. Um, And, again, the main way that that, that you have – if you have, say, 10 salespeople in in an organization, they tend to all be operating with – whether it's an iPad or a tablet, a smartphone. um, That's how they're generally operating, and that's how they're reaching the company – and I think that there aren't very often, particularly with smaller operations, there really aren't a lot of policies and procedures in place to protect the information that they're accessing. And again, this is called bring your own device. It's basically, it's a practice that allows or in some cases even requires your staff um, to access company files and information using their own devices. And this can be either using just email uh, you know, email access or they can actually be logging into the organization's servers from their, you know, from their own computer. And data loss, this is a big increase right there in uh, in risk, because this is a device that's their own personal device. You don't know the level of protection. It's usually on <laughs> maybe almost 24-7. It's not just during business hours. And then they're also traveling. They can leave them in a rental car, in the airport, unattended. Um, so you have to focus on physically protecting these devices and what data they actually have access to through these devices. And one of the biggest issues, again, is that these devices, these devices don't have anti-malware on them. They don't have a lot of protections on them, but yet... They're not using them just to access the information. They're actually storing information on these devices, and that can lead to huge problems. I think beyond that, you have things like other threats or, you know, payment card skimmers, point-of-sale intrusions, and what I mean by that is you have these sophisticated card readers, and those are skimmers. They fit inside regular point-of-sale card readers, and they can connect electronically, you know, off-site to send. They can store data. They can send data. They can capture credit card numbers and PIN numbers and passwords, and there may be a combination system that includes a pinhole camera that captures your pin as you're entering it on the keypad. So things like that, um, you can have a huge drain of information without even knowing it. Um, After that, you have things like malware that most people have heard of, and that's malicious software, and that can be downloaded, whether it's a phishing, you know, one of the uh, phishing attacks you get in one of the emails, not dissimilar to the kind of email you received, that you never know if it contains malware as well. And the real sinister part of it is that, it can basically live on your device without you knowing it. So you haven't, detected, you haven't detected it, and yet it's kind of on your device, in many cases, feeding information to an external source. So you want to make sure that you have protection on your device for this. And again, usually you have software on your computer, but not on your mobile device. So you have these malware infections, and they can steal bank records and trade secrets, a lot of system data. Then you have things like um, like web app attacks, and that's basically describing stolen login and password information, and that can be used to access accounts from your business, posing as your business, posing as authorized officers when they're not. So that can lead to other problems by people simply uh, stealing information and, uh, and, and you know through identity theft and pretending that they're a staff member. Um, I think one of the best defenses to web app attacks is you want to use um, two-factor authentication. It's called 2FA. And basically what that means is you're adding a second layer of protection. So it involves something you know, which is a password, for example, um, something you have, which could be a smartphone or a fob, and then something you are, which is basically a fingerprint, some form of biometrics, and it requires two out of three of those things. So if you're requiring that of your staff, then you've added that extra level of protection. You've really lessened your chances of having a problem. So even if they have a password, if they don't have access to their smartphone, for example, they still can't get into the system. And then speaking of that, you have things like insider abuse and, and, and misuse. So these are staffers, rogue staffers, um, staff, you know, uh, employees who are doing things they shouldn't within your business. Um, I think in many cases, this is really more about you give them privileges you shouldn't have given them. So they have access to things they shouldn't. Um, they're being granted. You know, for example, people should only have access to your system for things that they need access to to do their jobs. But in many cases, you have this across-the-board access where they can access financial information, personnel records, customer records, and they have no need to access that at all. But you don't have, you know, great gradated levels where only the people at the top need that, and other people who are maybe it's a salesperson or someone answering the phones, they don't need that same access, but yet they're all granted the same level of access. So that can either lead to things like, you know, stolen data because they're intentionally misusing it, or they just simply use unapproved workarounds and things like that for convenience, and that's also putting your information at risk. And then it can be things as simple as they just made a mistake. There's sensitive information they sent to the wrong person, the wrong, you know, the wrong, uh, the wrong email address, or they're publishing non-public data on your web servers or making it public. They don't dispose of uh, person-identifiable information correctly. So things like that are just, again, that's employee problems, and that's about training and what we talked about earlier. So if you think about it, you have one staff member who has bad intentions and proper administrative privileges that can create amazing havoc in your organization, just that one person with privileges they shouldn't have. So you really want to ask yourself, Do they require this layer of access to do their jobs and these this level of administrative privileges, or should it only be one or two people that have that, and then everyone else is only given the privileges just to do their job? So I think those are some of the basic things.
1: That's a good segue to the next question, which is what are some of the red flags that you may have a data security problem, because as you indicated, you may not know you have an issue. So what should you be looking for?
0: That is one of the biggest issues is is uncovering it when it happens, and God forbid you have something that happened several days ago or a week ago and you never found out about it. So you want to continuously monitor your network activity, and that can really show you some very obvious red flags. You consider using things like intrusion detection systems, You want to maintain central log files of all your your security-related information. So essentially, you're monitoring the activity on your network, what's coming in, what's going out. So hopefully, you can then spot whatever it is, and you can respond to the attack immediately. So if you have an attack on your network, the log's going to tell you, you know, it's going to identify, hopefully, which computer has been compromised. And then you're going to monitor what the incoming traffic is, and you're looking for signs that someone's trying to hack into your system. So you're looking for things like activity from new users that you don't recognize, um, multiple login attempts. It could be like a brute force attack where you have, they're just trying multiple logins um, until one works, obviously. So you want to have something that locks down. and says if there's a certain number of failed logins, it locks them out, you know, protections like that. So if you see an unknown user or an unknown computer and there's multiple login attempts, that's a big red flag right there. Um, you also look at the things like, you know, higher than average traffic at, at strange times a day, uh, you know, two in the morning. Um, that's always a sign. And then you then want to switch to looking at what the outgoing traffic is. And that could be really a basic sign for a data breach. So you see this huge amount of data that's being transmitted from your system to some unknown user. Um, you want to make immediately sure that, uh, you know, investigate that, make sure that the transmission is really authorized, and that's supposed to be leaving your system. So, for example, if you see a substantial amount of data that's leaving your network at 4 a.m. and it's going to a server outside the country, or if you have hundreds of attempts that are made to access a key account within one hour, then you likely have a real problem that you have to investigate immediately.
1: Now, just a reminder, you're listening to the Voice of Manhattan Business. My guest today is Brian Rauer from the Better Business Bureau. We're discussing risk management, business continuity, cybersecurity, privacy, and more. If you have any questions, feel free to call in. The number is 805-243-1301 and dial 1 so I know you have a question. Please remember the opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or positions of the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. Additionally, as a matter of policy, the Better Business Bureau does not endorse any product, service, or business. The imp- information provided here is believed to be reliable, but the BBC, <laughs> <BDB> <laughs> close does not get, well, you know, maybe the British Broadcasting Corporation will uh, endorse it. Yeah, this. that's not us. Who are we to say? <laughs> All right, let me start that sentence again. <clears throat> the information provided here is believed to be reliable, but the BBB does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. No information provided here in conjunction with this interview constitutes nor shall be construed as legal advice. It is not intended nor may it be relied upon as legal advice in any form. I knew that would eventually happen. That's okay. I, you know, it's, it's funny. I spent 13 years in Israel. I listened religiously to the BBC every day for news and entertainment. And the first time I read this, I said to myself, eventually I'm going to get
0: tongue-tied. There you go. You got it out of your system now, so it's good.
1: There. Done. (laughs) Brian, can you offer any tips for the unfortunate business owner that has had its status stolen or compromised?
0: Yeah, um I think I have some some decent tips in this area. Uh I think the the number one thing is responding quickly. Um if you think you've had a breach, if you think you've had data stolen, um it's so much easier if you've already taken steps beforehand. Um you have a data breach notification policy that you posted. You want to make sure your employees were already trained to identify it and spot it when they occur, so you're you're at least starting from a good state where it, it, it's immediately happened and you immediately know about it. So if you have this data breach notification policy, it's telling the consumers how your business is going to notify you know, their customers, them, if there's a data breach. And then on top of that, you want to then gather whatever the facts are of the breach that you think you've had. So when I say that, I mean what's been compromised, what might possibly have been compromised, because it, in the initial stages, you may not be sure the extent of the compromise. And when you're doing this, make sure you keep a chronology, you know, what you discovered, when you discovered it. And if you think it's becoming a a bigger issue, you might even think about getting assistance from someone like a data forensic expert, you know, helping you with the investigation. Um, You're then getting into things like notifying financial institutions. So if there's any financial information, payment card number information, if any of that was compromised, you want to contact the bank or whatever company you're using that manages your payment card processing. And then I stress this: you really want to think about contacting outside counsel. Um, your attorney is going to help you identify what are the laws that are involved, and there are a lot of laws involved, and whether you need to alert consumers or the government of what happened. And then, obviously, you want to follow up and, and notify the consumers that you think have been affected. So, and, and again, follow your policy. If you said in your data breach notification policy you would let them know in a certain way, you got to follow that policy. Um, and, again, there are state-specific laws on notification, the delivery method, um, so you want to talk to your attorney about that. And the kind of things you might want to ask them are um, things like what state laws apply to your particular incident. Um, you know, with the incident that, you, that you've that had, you know, is it really it's considered a data security breach under the laws that, that are um, in place? So if it's whether it's New York, New Jersey, whatever, you know, say under New York law, was this a data security breach? You want to find that out, and if it is, then you have a number of other obligations you have to do right after that. So then are you required to notify the consumers that this happened? Are you required to notify the government that this happened? And, again, then what federal agencies, you know, have to be notified? Um, You want to talk about, uh, you know, local law enforcement, even if it's not, even if you're not required. You know, think about then still voluntarily notifying local law enforcement, the FBI. Um, You want to know if you're required to notify consumer reporting agencies. You know, I'm talking about, like, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion um then again you're required to notify payment card companies uh, of the incident um and then you basically want to find out that if you do have this requirement what's your time frame how much time do you have where well, you have to issue those notices and make sure you stay in compliance with those and then you know what if, and again right now this is a day and age where people could be shopping on your website and they could be coming from abroad so they could be from multiple countries so you know what are your requirements if the individuals affected live out of the country so, you know, again, then if you have to send a notification letter, what do you have to put in that notification letter? So when you have to notify the consumer you want to tell them what occurred, you want to tell them when it occurred, and you really want to focus on what steps you're taking to address the, uh, the issues that took place here to, uh, to address the breach. Um, I think you also want to bear in mind that almost every state and, and territory has enacted some form of data breach notification statute. They can vary between the states. But the basic data breach notification statutes, they generally require businesses that have had any PII, personal identifiable information about the residents within that state, you got to then notify those residents if someone who wasn't authorized for that acquires that information. So that's kind of in a nutshell. But again, you want to check state to state what the specific requirements are, and that's why you should really be talking to an attorney about that, Um, specifically to find out what statutes apply to your business and then what the requirements of those statutes are. Talk to us
1: about ransomware and how to respond. How can you help
0: to preserve business
1: continuity when you're a victim of a ransomware attack? And of course, explain you know, what ransomware is in case. Somebody yeah, I don't know.
0: Not, not everyone knows what ransomware is. Um, I think the best thing is probably to give you an example of what might happen. You know, you can say you're a small business. Um, you return from lunch, and you know, small business, you have maybe one, one or two terminals, one main terminal. You, you you have all of your customer information, all your data, all their PII in that terminal, and you see this sinister message on the desktop, and the message says something like, uh, your personal files are encrypted, uh, your documents, your databases, you know, all these other important files have been encrypted with the strongest encryption. There's a unique key that's generated for your computer. And then they talk about a private decryption key, which is stored on some secret Internet server, and no one can decrypt it uh, unless you pay And you get some private key. So basically it's ransoming, it's crimeware. It's a form of malware or crimeware, it's called ransomware, that basically says we've locked down, it can be many forms, but the, form I'm, the common form I'm talking about now is when someone externally locks down your files, it, it puts this really strong encryption there, and then it gives you a certain number of hours basically to submit a payment for them. I mean, they're extorting, they're extorting the business owner, and if they don't pay that, then they're going to permanently lock out their files and they'll never get them back again. This can shut down a small business if they're not properly prepared for it. Um, and it does give you a specific amount of time, and this information really can be permanently lost. It can stay permanently cryptid, and no one can recover the files. So if you're in a situation like that, and this is a real, actual cyber attack, um, then, you know, there's many kind of forms of it that can take place, but if you're dealing with this one, you want to really go through an assessment, and the um, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, it's called, the, they have this NIST cybersecurity framework. It's become a, the kind of a, the real gold standard in this area. It talks about five steps if you had something like this take place. Um, you want to identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, and I'm going to explain what each of those mean. Um, the key thing you want to focus on is maintaining business continuity. So that essentially means how do you restore normal business operation, normal business functioning, you know, your day-to-day operations and your customer services. So the first thing you want to do is you identify what's been hit, what's the problem. So in this case, the example I gave you, you have a couple of critical assets, the owner's desktop and all the client data information that it maintains, and that stuff this, this individual would need to conduct their business on a day-to-day basis. And then, uh, you know, the device involved is a, laptop, is a desktop computer. And then you talk about what protection was in place. And this is the most key area. It depends on what the small business owner did. If the small business owner was really smart, they're backing up on a daily basis to an external drive. So that means off site, not there, separate drive, all the information, all the customer information there is fully backed up every night on an external drive and that's a real big safety feature. And then the next part is detect. And in this case it's easy. There was a ransomware message and it basically says that we've locked out your device and you're being you're under attack. And then the key part here is then how do you respond to this? So in this particular situation, your response is going to be short-term. How do I operate for the next, say, few days, the next week? You want to look and see if you have any paper records, alternate records, your backup information to use while you're starting the recovery process. And that's really going to mean, in this case, wiping the drive completely um, so that every, all the, um, you know, everything is cleared out from it. If there's any other malware installed, it's completely wiped. You then reload Windows, and again, you can use a, an outside computer expert for this if you trust them. Um, you then reload the database application, and then you would, this is the key part, you're reloading the data from your backup drive. So you are regaining that data without having to pay any, uh, you know, any uh, ransom, which uh, is problematic on so many different levels. Um, so ultimately what you have is you maybe were knocked out of operation for a few days, but you still had a way of dealing with it from a temporary basis through alternate records, things like that. And then when you have a wipe drive and you have all your data reloaded, you can get back to your normal business operation. So that's fairly minimal disruption, obviously. And there are many problems. Sure. Let me
1: stop you there, because it's my understanding that the ransomware software, whatever you want to call it, is connected to a document. And you, of course, didn't know that it was connected to that document, and it didn't – become active until you opened the document. So you don't know which document it was. How do you know that you're not reloading that up onto your computer?
0: Good question. I mean, the first thing to tell you, and speaking more generically in terms of malware itself, I mean, there were times where, and one of the biggest problems with malware is you don't often know that it's sitting on your computer, and it can be really difficult to sometimes get off your computer. You have to have an expert A real expert who is trained in this, who's using the proper programs to make sure that this computer has been completely wiped and completely cleaned from it. You should not be using it for anything else, for any data, no business operations until you're completely sure it's been fully wiped of any possible malware. And then they'll do extensive testing to see that nothing's hiding, nothing's showing up. And can can you guarantee it? In some cases, you can't. In some cases, you pretty much shouldn't be using that, that computer at all. Um, And you basically want to, uh, you know, uh, switch to a different computer and not use this to store any important information. But in terms of having it loaded onto it, and again, in many cases, you've gotten a phishing email or things like that. And that's why I say don't click on anything. Don't open attachments that you're not sure of. I don't don't care what the line says. Um, If if you think it's not really intended for you, um, their whole point is to get you to click on something to release the malware. They also have something called scareware that can hit your computer. It actually tells you that uh, your computer has just been hit with a virus. The only way to protect yourself is by downloading this from this button, and it's going to protect your computer. Well, hitting that button is what then downloads the actual malware onto your system. So you've got to be really careful when you get these notices. They're not there to help you. Uh, they're there to, uh, to make you download information. Um, so be really cl- careful with anything you click on, anything you open. You want to immediately delete it. Never go any further than that. That's why I talk, when I talked to you earlier, just delete it. Don't even consider responding. Don't do anything that could click through anywhere. That might be downloading malware, obviously. So if you, if you believe that it may, be, uh, it may be a sinister message, um, don't investigate that way. That's not the way to do it and again it 's a really good advice you 're giving there is just make sure that your computer has been completely wiped and completely cleaned from it before you have been considering using that computer again. It could still be there lurking in the background um, i 'd also say that just so I, so i've uh, let people know about this um if you 're in a position where you haven 't backed up off site there are people that actually still consider you know uh paying the um you know the ransom here. Obviously, that's problematic on a lot of levels. Um, I understand that a business is concerned about losing their information permanently, but some of the issues with that are, you know, do you even trust them? Again, why would you trust them in the first place? Are they even going to decrypt your files even after you pay? And the actual average payments can be, you know, several hundred dollars, up to several thousand dollars. They often want them in Bitcoin or some other kind of online currency. You know, will you even be able to then restore your full data after it's decrypted? You know, does law enforcement have a big problem about you actually paying these ransoms? So... You really want to be real careful before even thinking about ever paying a ransom like that.
1: I actually, we had a, uh, with the chamber, we have what are called chairman's breakfasts. And the last one was a week, ten days, two weeks ago with a representative from Homeland Security. And the person who was supposed to come had to cancel at the last moment, and his assistant came. And I asked her about ransomware and what the policy of the government was about whether or not you should pay. And she smiled and said that they had no policy. So she refused (laughs) to answer the question. But she did give me some website that... the federal, I forget what it is, that the federal government has that deals specifically with ransomware and mm-hmm. giving advice, you know, what have you. But let's switch to privacy. What are some basic practices for businesses to keep in mind regarding privacy policies and general privacy uh, pra- uh, practices? Are there some simple steps that can hopefully reduce these risks? And I realize it's a brand new world because I've always said and taught that at work, the only place an employee
0: or a visitor has the
1: assumption of privacy is in the bathroom,
0: nowhere else. Well, I think, I think in terms of the subject matter we're dealing with, you're obviously I think you're dealing with um, more from your customer's perspective. I think they probably want to know what you're doing with their information, how you're protecting your information. Um, I think it's always a, a very good idea to make sure you develop and you, uh, you maintain a, a really comprehensive privacy policies. I think your customers have a right to know um, what protections you have in place, what they can expect when, they, when they're working with your business um, online. Um, and again, it's only effective if they actually know it's there, so you want to make sure it's really visible. Um, don't make it hard to find. Don't make, you, have to, you shouldn't have to click through four pages to find a privacy policy. It should be right there on the home page and there should be many ways to, uh, to actually access it. Um, you should keep it simple. Um, clear, concise, um, use plain language. If you're using techno-speak with people, um, the average consumer is not going to understand what you're talking about. The whole point is to convey information and allow them to understand exactly what they're doing with your information and exactly how they're protecting it. So um, tell them how they're handling it. Um, make sure that you, uh, you do what you say you'll do. Um, so if you're making a pledge to them through your privacy policy that you will protect it in such a way, you're, you're, you're either sharing it or not sharing it, and here's how, um, but once you say, once you put the privacy policy up there, make sure that you're actually following that privacy policy. And the reason I say that is because you may have companies that are tempted to simply cut and paste another company's policy. You can't do that because what are the odds of you following everything that they're following? Um, the fact is it's, it's particular to your business, and uh, another company's policy doesn't help at all. So you want to really focus on exactly what you're doing, how you're protecting personal data, and it's got to reflect accurately uh, things that are specific to your business's practices. Um, you want to make sure it's current, um, if the policy needs to be updated, if you're changing your privacy practices, anything that affects their customer data, make sure you're communicating those changes in how you're using their data, and uh, make sure that you share it with your customers before they actually take effect. I think keeping in mind some of, kind of the key things you want to put in the policy itself, um, you always want to identify the types of data that your site is actually collecting. So from things like name and home addresses to email addresses, credit card information, IP addresses, Um, you want to focus on how they're collecting the data. Um, Online forms are obvious. When you have online forms, they're entering email uh, details for newsletters and credit card data. Those are pretty obvious. Less obvious ones are data collection through things like cookies and other trackers. So you want to make sure that uh, you're explaining your cookie practices to all your customers. You know, what are you doing with the data? how you're using it, um, how long you'll store it, um, if you're sharing it, and particularly um, if you have business partners, you're allowing marketers and others to collect this data, you want to explain what they're doing with it. Again, you have an obligation. If you're sharing it with business partners and potentially selling their data, you have the right to know that before you give any of the information to the business. Um, I think you always want to give them a point of contact, so you 're helping your customers if they want to change their passwords, close their account, unsubscribe from mailing lists, um, simply complain if there 's a problem, and then I think you want to finish up and describe how you 're protecting it so uh, and again, you should be protecting the, your customer data with really strong data integrity security measures, but uh, let them know what you 're doing in that regard. Um, I think you have to remember even you know even business even if you have like really well established business practices, you always want to relook at how you're handling them, rethink it, because you never know in terms of this day and age if things have changed. So if you have practices that worked five years ago, maybe they don't work in this day and age. So take another fresh look at how you're handling data and make it a real priority. So you look at things like like, take inventory of what you're actually collecting businesses may be surprised they're collecting a lot of things they never should have collected in the first place, and they certainly shouldn't be retaining it. So if you're collecting data that you think is reasonably specific to a, a particular computer, a device, a customer, that's PII, that's personal data. And you want to classify it. You want to rank it in terms of the privacy risk. So if you have really sensitive data like Social Security numbers, which I can't imagine the reason you would necessarily need to collect unless it was for you know, legal purposes depending on your industry, or credit card information, that's at the very high level of how you have to protect it. So you're looking at how you collect it, where it's stored, who has access to it, who you're sharing it with. And then at that point, you're saying, wow, can I really scale down here? So you only want to collect what you need and then store what you need. If you needed a credit card for a one-time use, why would you possibly retain that information? You have an obligation once you collect it to to maintain that information and uh, protect it from risk. So you have one less thing to protect if you don't hold on to it. So whatever you need to meet legal requirements and run your business, that's fine. Beyond that, you should be eliminating these data elements that you don't need at all. Um, And then just some of the basic stuff I talked earlier in terms of looking at your privacy practices, you know, ensure you're protecting the data from identity theft and cyber threats and things like using SSL encryption when you're transmitting any financial or or sensitive data. Um, Again, avoid using social security numbers for identification. That's hopefully a thing of the past unless you absolutely require it for legal reasons. Um, there's just no reason to be asking for that information. If you're processing credit cards, again, be PCI compliant. Um, you never wanna send sensitive data by email, I mentioned, unless it's encrypted, long and strong passwords, physical security. So these are all the things that still come into play. And I'll just finish up by saying, if you are disposing of the data, you gotta make sure that you have a, a written retention policy and then a and a disposal policy. So. When you're getting rid of data, you make sure that you're wiping PCs. Deleting does not delete the information. It's got to be absolutely wiped before, before you know, you're, you're getting rid of it. For copiers actually maintain hard drives, and they can also store personal data, so keep that in mind. And, you know, using, obviously, commercial shredders if you need to and cross-cut shredders. And just remember, you're making privacy. It's, it's a real core value of your business. You're making sure that all the procedures you have in place are clear, they're consistently enforced, And any employees that don't need access to data, they should not have access to it. And then this is all done through written guidelines and reminders. And I think finally you want to designate someone. This is kind of your employee privacy contact. And this is someone, if anyone has questions, concerns, that's the person they go to. So those are some of the things I think might be helpful.
1: Brian, before I let you go, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch?
0: Well, uh, our – um, website is new york and that's written out as one word.bbb.org. Um, we also have a national website it's just bbb.org um, main office we have at uh, 30 east 33rd street 12th floor um, if you have a in general inquiries it's inquiry at newyork.bbb.org and a um, main phone number is 212-533-6200
1: Brian, as always, thank you so much. I really appreciate the relationship with uh, the Better Business Bureau, and I'm delighted we're going to continue it next year.
0: It's always a pleasure, Bruce. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, and as always, a special thank you to our listeners. And I am certain Brian joins me in not only wishing everyone a safe and prosperous week, but to those individuals celebrating the Jewish New Year, we wish everyone a new year of peace prosperity and good health. Thank you for listening.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office.